warm welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us for a special pumpkin spice edition of the programme. Autumn finally in full swing, bringing brisk weather and a spicy set of headlines, at least from the economic patch. S stands for streaming. Netflix says it's on a path to, quote, re-accelerate growth, adding more than twice as many subscribers as expected. P is for profits, too. Netflix joining a growing list of firms reporting solid third quarter results, including major U.S. banks and airlines. Next up, Tesla later today. I, in the meantime, for inflation, talk about scary spice. New data shows UK prices spiking more than 10% in September. Another challenge, of course, for the embattled Truss government. See, China, the week-long party congress continues. President Xi gearing up for a unprecedented third term, even as COVID cases hit a four-month high in Beijing. And finally, E is for energy. The Biden administration set to release an additional 15 million barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to help ease petrol prices ahead of the midterm elections. Now, in the meantime, not much posh spice, however, on Wall Street pre-market. Futures more like soft spice after a strong two-day rally fueled by earnings optimism and the UK market calming U-turn, of course, on tax cuts. It's a different picture today, as you can see. However, the Nasdaq up more than 3% over the past two days. And the Dow, as you can see there, top left back above 30,000. But as we've discussed all this week, lots of investors' concern over the relentless pace of recession forecasts. Fitch, the rating agency, now seeing a mild U.S. recession, U.S. recession beginning in the spring. Mark Zandi of Moody's Analytics will be along later to give his outlook, the state of the global economy, of course, hinging on the situation in Ukraine. And that, once again, is where we begin today's show. And Just a couple of hours ago, a declaration by the Kremlin that it's imposing martial law in four regions of Ukraine that Russia recently claimed to have annexed. Vladimir Putin making that announcement. In this regard, let me remind you that in the Donetsk People's Republic, the Luhansk People's Republic, as well as in the Kherson and Zaporizhia regions, martial law was in effect before joining Russia. Now, we need to formalize this regime within the framework of Russian legislation. Therefore, I signed a decree on the introduction of martial law in these four subjects of the Russian Federation, so it will be immediately sent to the Federation Council. Now, this declaration comes as the new Russian commander in Ukraine described the situation in the southern region of Kherson as very difficult, quote. In a rare TV interview, he also said the army will ensure safe evacuations. Russian installed leaders there have begun relocating civilians. Nick Robertson joins us on this. Nick, good to have you with us. It feels like an established path. The more difficult the situation gets for Russia in Ukraine and for Vladimir Putin specifically, uh, the more stringent, the more aggressive he becomes. What might this declaration of martial law in these four regions mean for the people there and these evacuations, as they're being called, and beyond? Well, yeah, it's hard to know precisely, uh, but I I, I think we know enough about how Russia operates under martial law. And I think it's worth noting as well that just across the border inside Russia, there's now a special decree been signed by President Putin affecting those regions that will restrict travel to and from uh, what was Ukraine, but to those four illegally annexed territories. And also Putin signing an additional decree that will affect the whole of Russia, essentially allowing all regions to 
set up uh, a sort of separate security administration that he's allowing for that uh, and that he wants the, the governors to work with that. So it's very wide ranging and sweeping. But as far as those four uh, illegally annexed areas and Hershon in particular, I think that perhaps gives us the best example of what martial law can mean. As you were saying, uh, the general in charge of that area last night on TV saying the bridges are damaged. We can't get food supplies in uh, properly to the city of Hershon. The, the, the Ukrainians are advancing. He said his troops are trying to grind the, down the enemy's advance. But the indications are there that there's a risk that Russia could lose that territory, even be wor worse, be laid to siege there, which would be a very tough uh, public relations uh, disaster for President Putin back in Moscow. But what happened to the residents of Hershon this morning? They were sent text messages telling them that they should evacuate. Now martial law has been declared. That would imply that the military has control of the law and the right to be able to demand that civilians leave rather than tell them that they should or request them. Now, we don't have the details of precisely what the martial law means, but the implications are very serious that any civilians in those areas can be uh, potentially detained by the military under law and can be ordered to do things under law by the military. Uh, that is that is a degradation of how Ukrainians are living under Russian occupation already. Mm. Nick Robertson, thank you so much for the clarification and um, the perspective. Thank you. Now, as Nick was saying, Putin also said he will give additional powers to the local leaders of all Russian regions. Matthew Chance joins us on this now. Matthew, what might that mean? Well, it's a good question. Um, and it's one of those areas of this announcement uh, of the uh, martial, the, you know, the partial martial law, I suppose you can call it, um, that isn't been, hasn't been spelled out. We don't know exactly what powers he's given to the regional leaders. Um, we do know uh, that as well as imposing martial law on those four areas of Ukraine that Russia earlier annexed, uh, but which it doesn't com entirely control, it's also tightened restrictions around the border areas uh, between Russia and Ukraine. Um, uh, and so it's going to make it much more uh, hard, I suppose, to, to access those areas. It's going to limit uh, civil liberties in those areas as well and tighten uh, military control on those border regions, some of which have come under attack uh, from across the border on the other side. Um, and so that's sort of sort of stretching this or expanding this um, this martial law into Russia proper, as it were. And then, of course, that issue you raised about the powers, the unspecified powers being given to the regional leaders. They're still um, un, un, undisclosed. And I think there'll be various discussions about that in the hours and in the days ahead. But certainly what, what we've seen as one tangible result of this announcement today by Vladimir Putin is that in general, um, central control over the country has been you know, somewhat tightened. We don't know to what extent, but it, it's, we're definitely in a sort of more of a, a, a sort of, um, you know, it's, it's towards the path of authoritarianism uh, rather than in the other direction. Mm. Um, and so, so that will be something that's of uh, great concern to people in the country. A more controlled environment. Matthew, great to have you with us. Thank you from Moscow there.
Okay, let's move on. A homecoming in the midst of unrest. Iranian rock climber Elnaz Rukhebi is back in her home in Iran after competing without wearing a headscarf at an international event in South Korea over the weekend. But her return is being met with growing concern. She could face repercussions as Iran continues to brutal its brutal crackdown on protests since the death of Masa Amini. Nada Bashir joins us now with more. Nada, what more do we know about where she is, what her family is saying and and how safe she really is. Well, look, her safety is of primary concern, Julia. That is certainly the question that relatives, friends, human rights organizations have been asking uh, since we heard that she had gone uh, incommunicado for a time during her time in South Korea. She has returned home, and I have to say that this couldn't only be described as a hero's welcome for Elnaz Rakabi, uh, arriving in the early hours of Wednesday morning to crowds at the airport chanting uh, that, that she is a hero, of course, uh, for taking part in the Asian Climbing Championships with her hair uncovered. Now, of course, it's impossible to ignore the context here. This happened amidst rising protests across the country, women and girls removing their mandatory hijabs. These strict regulations are placed on women and girls by the regime and enforced often violently by the country's morality police. And women in Iran have to cover their hair, but also women uh, taking part in any sort of sporting activity overseas while representing the country. Now, we've heard uh, from Elnaz Rakabi. She did issue a statement on her Instagram uh, prior to her arrival, saying that this was uh, an accident, that she had been called to climb unexpectedly, and that as a result, there had been issues uh, with covering her hair. She also spoke to state media upon her arrival in Iran, reiterating her apology for any confusion that may have been caused, and once again said that this had totally been an accident uh, on her part. But there have been concerns raised by human rights organizations that she may have been speaking under duress, that she may be facing control repression by the Iranian authorities. We have known, of course, the Iranian authorities in the past uh, to enforce these sorts of repressive tactics on notable figures, particularly, of course, journalists and other uh, political activists and uh, human rights defenders. So there is certainly concern around her safety. We've been speaking uh, to numerous human rights actors uh, over the last 48 hours who have said that people in this sort of position would typically face potentially arbitrary detention, ill-treatment by the Iranian authorities, even potentially torture. And it's unclear what sort of situation now uh, Elnaz Rakabi faces in Iran. We haven't heard any updates uh, regarding her situation at present. The Iranian regime uh, has denied any reports that she would be detained. We heard from the embassy in Seoul saying that these reports were fake news in their words. But it is uh, still, of course, a matter of huge concern as to how she will be received by the Iranian authorities. Julia? Mm. And we'll continue to watch it very closely. Nada, thank you so much for that. Nada Bashir there. Okay, more first move after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. After a nightmare over the past two quarters, Netflix is bouncing back. The streaming giant reported strong growth in the third quarter, adding 2.4 million subscribers. Netflix also expects to finish the year strong. Frank Pelota joins us on this. Frank, stranger things have happened. The question is, can they sustain this? Because it is a dramatic change and actually what they managed to add in terms of subscribers, far better than they predicted. 
Right, and we need to really look at the full year of Netflix here. So mm. basically where we start is that it's, it's lost subscribers the first two quarters. It lost about 1.2 million subscribers. Then it had this huge jump where it made about 2.4 million subscribers in Q3, which was over the 1 million subscribers that it expected. Yay, everyone's having a good time at Netflix. Everything's back to normal, right? That kind of true. It is back on track. The bleeding has seemingly stopped. Even Reed Hastings, the CEO, said, hey, look, our time of losing subscribers is over. We're going to be positive going forward. But the problems still are here for the company. Its stock is down 55% year to date. It's uh, the United States and Canada region, arguably its biggest region. It's, it's changed a little bit, but it's still its biggest region has stopped growing. And its, its subscribers have stagnated. So it had to bring in all these new ways to make money with revenue, with things like password clamping down and the biggest of all, creating a new ad plan, which is going to kick off in just a few weeks. Yeah. Thank God we're done with shrinking quarters, says Reed Hastings. One quarter does not the future make. Um, And I think to your point, and it's a very important one, they also warned about the impact of the stronger dollar, because, of course, that impacts foreign earnings relative to um, bringing them back home, bringing that money back home, of course. But they also warned about inflation being a problem, too. And to your point about providing this lower tier, this ad subsidized lower tier, lower price point for Netflix, you know, what's the risk perhaps that people decide, look, I'm trying to be more careful with my money and I go down to that lower tier that, that has some adverts. I know they said they weren't so worried. What about everybody else? So this is my concerns about the ads here. So obviously inflation and the cost of the dollars impacting not just Netflix, but pretty much every company in the United States and around the world. But what I'm really interested in is with this ad tier, which is going to cost about $6.99. It's going to debut in early November. Is that going to bring in new revenue or is it going to cut down the revenue they already have? So say like someone like me who pays nearly $20 to have the premium, the 4K, all the bells and whistles. Am I going to look at this now and go, actually, you know what? I don't really think it's worth that price. I'm going to cut now my subscriber fee in half so that I can basically go down to the $6.99. Are we going to see more people do that? Or are we going to see more people come into the company who did not have Netflix before? That's the big question. And I think the big problem for Netflix is it might be the people that already have Netflix cutting back their subscription for an ad-supported cheaper plan. Yeah, I'm with you. Although I saw Chief Product Officer Greg Peters poo-pooed that. We shall see. Frank Floater, thank you so much for that. OK, to the UK now, where the Prime Minister focused on reasserting her authority. Mr Speaker, I am a fighter and not a quitter. I have acted in the national interest to make sure that we have economic stability. She's a fighter, but is she a survivor? Liz Truss went on to the offensive during a grilling in the House of Commons and shrugged off opposition calls to step down. Again, she apologised for the economic and political turmoil created over the past couple of weeks. The Labour leader called out what he called a mandate built on fantasy economics. 45p tax cut, gone. Corporation tax cut, Gone. 20p tax cut. Gone. Two-year energy freeze. Gone. Tax-free shopping. Gone. Economic credibility. Gone. And her supposed best friend, the former Chancellor, he's gone as well. They're all gone. So why is she still here? 
Bianca Novello joins us now. It was always going to be feisty, this Prime Minister's questions, I have to say. I shouldn't be enjoying it, but the cut and thrust of this is very important for, for policy going forward, too. The slight problem here, and I actually think she performed well, and you can give your view, too. Um, the U-turns continue, and that's a problem. It is a problem, one of many, and feisty it certainly was. We often talk about the pantomime nature about, of British politics. Well, we literally had a bit of pantomime there with the benches chanting that refrain as Keir Starmer was laying into the Prime Minister about her economic policy, which is now in tatters, obviously, because the Chancellor has taken control. She did come out fighting. It's the strongest performance we've seen from Liz Truss, rhetorically speaking. She had more control. There was more energy in her voice. She'd seemed to command some support from her benches as well. And we've had quite the, the arc with Liz Truss, because to begin with, when the mini budget sent the markets into a spiral, there were no apologies. Then we had sort of gestures towards apology. Then she appeared very defeated after the firing of her chancellor. And now we've got apologies and some fight from Liz Truss. But it doesn't really change the political reality. The question is, for the Prime Minister, for most, is just how long she'll stay in post. Most Conservatives I've spoken to have decided that they do not want her to lead them into the next general election. Obviously, factors contributing to that being polls that put them so far behind Labour and recent polls from the Conservative Party membership who actually elected Liz Truss that the majority of them don't want her to be Prime Minister anymore. So the question is, how long will she last? Now, stronger performances like this, some market stabilisation, are giving her a little more road and then adding to that the fact that there just isn't a clear path for the Conservative Party right now, A, to remove the Prime Minister and also what happens beyond that because if they don't want to go back to the party membership and have another unedifying leadership contest then they will need to change the rules, Julia. And therein lies the key and where I dip into your, as I often call your encyclopedic knowledge of uh, British politics, what is the difficulty now with removing uh, Prime Minister Truss? Does it have to be a case where she is effectively forced to step down in order to replace her? And I keep reading that the sort of quiet behind the scenes view is the only person that could perhaps lead them into the next election with any gusto is, um, is Boris Johnson. Mm. Is there even a possibility of a return of Boris, Bianca, and you can... Um, you can answer all of the above or none, depending on how you choose. Well, I think it's fair to say that Boris Johnson is probably not trying to extinguish the discussions about whether or not he might make a triumphant return to the political scene after the Conservative Party has found itself in deeper chaos. We can probably say that. But in terms of the immediate, the issue is, is that a freshly elected leader of the Conservative Party is technically safe for one year against a no confidence vote from within the party. Now, that confidence vote, as we've discussed many times, is triggered by 15 percent of the party sending in letters. Now, they can make tweaks to that, which they're likely they likely might do behind the scenes. But what we understand is that it's more likely MPs think that the prime minister might be pressured to resign from behind the scenes leverage, perhaps being informed that more than a third or nearly half the party doesn't have confidence in her and then encouraging her to resign simply because there's too many processes that have to be undone and tweaked to do it any other way, Julia. Yeah. The, the heartbreak of this mm. is that we should be talking about policy and, and what this government's mm. trying to do to, to help the British public, instead of which we're expending oxygen talking about uh, political shenanigans, which is, um, yes, unfortunate. Bianca, mm. great to have you with us. Thank you.
All right, joining us now, the leader of the Liberal Democrats, Ed Davey, who is also in the Commons and joins us now. Um, so fantastic to have you on the show too. What did you make of, of today's performance? And I said earlier on the show, as uh, the Prime Minister said, she's a, not a quitter. The question is, is she a survivor? And can she survive both the political and the economic turmoil that's been created? Well, not on this performance and frankly, not on any of the uh, showings of Liz Trust to date. Um, the problem that the Conservative has is that it's actually not just about Liz Truss. Before her, we had Boris Johnson and how he was dividing the country, dividing his party and deceiving the country. Uh, his deception, his lies were very damaging to Conservatives. Now we've had a period under Liz Truss of gross incompetence where our economy has been trashed, where millions of mortgage holders have seen their, their bills go up, where solutions for people who are really struggling have not been sufficient, um, and where, frankly, the world is looking on aghast, uh, and uh, the Conservatives have humiliated their own government in the eyes of the world. This can't go on. There has to be a general election. We have to get rid of the whole Conservative Party. So talk to me about what you think then about Keir Starmer and the Labour Party's policies, because I hear your point about calling for a general election and throwing it back to the, to the British public to decide. But um, are you arguing then that Keir Starmer, because that's the way the polls look, could, could do a better job? No, I'm not. Um, but I do believe that Liberal Democrats will have a play a really big role in the next election. Um, if you look what at what's happened in real votes, well, we can defeat a lot of Conservative MPs to get rid of the Conservative government. And we can be uh, real players to make sure that we have a strong economic policy uh, where the world actually trusts us again, that can reduce interest rates and help us grow, where we have a proper policy to help people who are struggling. And uh, that's not just people on low incomes, people on middle incomes now, the, the problems are so great. And where we have a proper energy strategy, which is both making us more independent, so we're not having to import so much uh, fossil fuels from elsewhere, but also helps us get the cost down through renewables and insulating people's homes. Liberal, Demo Liberal Democrats have a very constructive uh, alternative policy, and we want to put that to the people. Has a painful but valuable lesson been learned, though, in the last three weeks that uh, policy pronouncements must be paid for? And there's no quarter if you don't. I mean, I, I just picked one example. You suggested that the, the sort of energy plan that the government put forward should be extended for a year rather than six months. What would be the plan to pay for that? Just instant well, reaction. Um, the lessons weren't valuable. They've been very expensive. And millions of people have paid the price for their mistakes. And Liberal Democrats have been arguing for over a year that the record unexpected huge profits of the oil and gas companies should should have a windfall tax on them. These huge tens of billions of pounds are being earned by some oil and gas companies simply because President Putin is killing innocent Ukrainians. It's morally right that those profits are taxed and that money is used to protect people uh, for their energy bills and not just people on lower incomes and pensioners, but frankly, um, the uh, vast majority of people out there. We put forward costed plans to do that. We can afford it, unlike the government. We can do it in a responsible way because we're prepared to say that this windfall tax should be appropriate and proper and make sure that money is switched in a fair way. So there's quite a lot of difference between the Liberal Democrats who want a fair and responsible economic policy compared to the unfairness and recklessness of the Conservatives. Ed, 
I think part of the challenge here, and you've raised one way, and I think the discussion should be had more broadly to your point. Um, how do you improve services like education and healthcare without raising debt while increasing growth and raising productivity? Um, the challenges here are vast. Have we seen the worst, do you think, in terms of the volatility, or are you fearful that, that there could be more to come? Well, unless the Conservatives go, I think the political instability will uh, economic spook markets. I think. Well, the political instability and the economic instability are related, aren't they? Mm. That's the problem. Um, the economic instability from the mini budget was bad enough. But when we don't know who's going to be the prime minister in a few weeks' time, when we see the governing party divided in several ways, that political instability results in bad government and poor economic policy. So your view is step down now. Sorry, could you repeat that? So your view is she should step down now? Well, I think the whole Conservative Party should step down. There should be a general election. That's what I'm saying to you, because I don't think the country can afford the division uh, and incompetence of the Conservatives any longer. You mentioned in your previous question about how to reform education and health. Well, I'm very happy to come on your programme and give you Liberal Democrat approaches to that. And it isn't just about spending. It's about doing things far more effectively. I, for example, and I asked the Prime Minister a question in the House just this afternoon about the role of family carers. A lot of the caring we need to do for people is done by families. And the problem is the way the NHS works at the moment brilliant though it is, it doesn't link in to family carers enough. So we have people uh, in hospital for too long. That's quite expensive. It's not good for them. And if we support the family carers, we get a better result and not cost much more money, if any money at all. Um, And the Conservatives don't get that. Uh, And that's the point that Liberal Democrats keep raising. Ed, come back and talk to us and we'll talk about a better plan for Britain, because I think that's uh, the bigger point here and you're right. Ed Davies, sir, thank you so much. Liberal Democrats leader there. Welcome back to First Move. US stocks are up and running this Wednesday. The major averages giving back, unfortunately, some of the strong gains chalked up over the past two sessions amid rising bond yields and fresh strength in the US dollar. However, Netflix is a big winner in tech. Call it the Netflix Flex. Shares up some 10% after Q3 subscription growth came in more than double that was what was expected. A strong revival from past quarters, even before the launch of its cheaper ad-supported plan. Context, as we always say, is everything. However, Netflix shares are still down more than 40% year to date. Tesla, in the meantime, under pressure ahead of the release of its latest numbers after the closing bell today. An extremely important report for Musk and co amid fears of weakening demand. And Apple, as you can see, also under pressure. Reports say it's cutting production of the iPhone 14, perhaps a sign of softer demand in the smartphone space too. Investors, of course, are highly attuned to any sign that consumers are pulling back on spending as higher borrowing costs bite. And brand new economic data suggests fresh weakness in housing. U.S. housing starts falling more than 8% last month after a strong read in August. Higher mortgage rates continuing to weigh on housing demand. Joining us now for the bigger picture, Mark Zandi, chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Mark, always fantastic to have you on the show. You know what? Amid so much recession discussion and timing and speculation, one of the most popular questions I get is, are we in recession here in the United States? Are we in recession? I hand it over to you. A quick answer. Uh, 
<laughs> Thanks, Julia. Definitive no, we're not in yeah. recession. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, we're just creating so many jobs, uh, and uh, 300,000 jobs a month on average in recent months. Uh, that's, uh, you know, just for context, we need about 100,000 just to maintain stable unemployment. So that's a lot of jobs. Unemployment is low, three and a half percent and falling. Still very high number of unfilled positions, layoffs at record lows. Uh, people are quitting their jobs at a high rate. You just don't do that unless you think you can find another one. None of that is consistent with the idea that the economy is in recession now. Now, obviously, the risks, the risks of recession going forward are pretty high. But at the, at the current point in time, the economy is not in recession, no. Yes. The definitive no is also part of the reason why prices continue to rise. And the Fed, of course, is frantically hiking interest rates in order to try and cool it, which is why what's you recently wrote about is, is so interesting to me because you talked about the prospect of inflation halving over the next several months. We're talking about going from just above 8% to, to around 4% in what, around six months or so's time? What's going to be the mechanism that brings inflation down? Does it tie to those interest rates or, to your point, the risk of quite a dramatic softening? No, it's just arithmetic, uh, Julia. It, it, it largely goes to oil prices. If oil prices stay roughly where they are, uh, about $90 a barrel, give or take, uh, and gasoline prices stay roughly where, they're, where they are, roughly $4 a gallon nationwide, then on a year-over-year basis, uh, inflation will uh, start to wind down here, uh, you know, go from 8% to 4%. That's because we had you know, big increases in oil and uh, gasoline prices a, a, about a year ago. So it's just uh, pretty much arithmetic. The hard part is going to get uh, is the next uh, stage going from 4% back down to the Fed's Federal Reserve's inflation target of two. That's not going to be easy. That's going to require a slowing in job growth, wage growth, and, uh, you know, careful kind of engineering of interest rates by the Federal Reserve. And that's why recession risks are so high. So eight to four, Assuming oil prices don't go up, and that you know, obviously that's a big assumption given everything that's going on in Russia, Ukraine, the European Union imposing sanctions, OPEC, so forth and so on. So I don't mean to uh, be Pollyannish here, but if, if they stay around 90, we should get from eight to four. But it's the four to two that it's going to be more difficult. It's the stickier part, but it's critically important because yeah. I think as people start to see inflation come down and particularly quite dramatically, to your point, even if it is the arithmetic, it sort of raises the concern about the sort of swift shift into a recessionary kind of environment, um, particularly as the Fed continues to try and signal, look, we, we still need to hike rates. We still need to get on top of this. And that journey to the, to the sort of around 2% target um, is so important. How concerned are you? about recession Concerned. risk and are we over talking yeah. about it well uh I, I think recession risks are high i mean you know getting uh, just calibrating this just right uh getting interest rates up high enough fast enough to slow growth but not too far too fast to push the economy in recession that's not easy even in you know a reasonably typical time but you know this is not typical you've got a lot of the things going on here the pandemic is still raging i was over in asia last week and in, in uh, Tokyo. And, you know, you get a real sense that the pandemic is still an issue, supply chains and labor markets. And I, you know, mentioned Russia's invasion, that that's still, a, you know, a problem. Uh, and, uh, you know, oil is still a big deal. So uh, those, and those are just the known unknowns. What about the unknown unknowns that can come out of, you know, left field, uh, particularly when the Fed is raising interest rates, putting pressure on the financial system and cracks start to develop. You could see what happened in, in the UK a couple, three weeks ago when, 
uh, that the the announced policies pushed gilt yields up dramatically and caused a problem in the UK pension system. Mm -hmm. That's just a, an example of the unknown unknown. So a lot of risk here. So I, yeah, I'm very nervous about the next 12 months. And uh, you know, one thing I will say uh, with some confidence is that even if we don't go into recession, the next 12 months are going to be tough. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be very uncomfortable. Yeah, we were just showing uh, what some of the commentary has been and the IMF saying the worst is still to come here as well. I think part of the reason why we're talking about it, for me, the United States matters for most other nations, because if the United States dramatically slows, it has an impact all around the world. We're seeing that already with the strength of the US dollar. Um, but, but it's also important, and I'm very concerned about talking ourselves into something too, and you and I have discussed this yeah. in the past. What should consumers be doing today? wherever they are in the world. Let's be clear, if, if their economy is slowing, prices are high, how should you behave not to precipitate something that's not happened yet? Yeah, great point. Uh, you know, I, I don't think we need to be running into the the, bunk, the proverbial economic bunker uh, mm. because, you know, there, we are creating lots of jobs here and unemployment is very low. I, I think, you know, uh, households, consumers just need to be prudent and cautious you know, make sure that they're not taking, you know, uh, big risk, making big purchases, taking on particularly a lot of debt. And if you have a high cost debt, like a, a credit card loan or a personal loan, probably a pretty good time to, you know, pay that back or pay down on that if you can, uh, just to, you know, be ready if things uh, do go sideways here. Uh, so I, I think do your part, do what you typically do, but, you know, don't take on too much risk here at this point in time. Uh, just be a little bit more cautious, a little bit more prudent than you typically would be. Yeah. Smart advice. Mark, great to have you with us as always. Thank you. Anytime. Yeah. Mark take Sandler. care. You too. Chief Economist there at Moody's Analytics. Thank you. And now to a hot topic among astronomers, a gamma ray burst that may be the biggest explosion ever seen with a telescope. Scientists say the long bright pulse happened when a massive star 2.4 billion light years away collapsed into a supernova explosion. I have to look at it. Scientists say the star was likely many times the mass of the sun and the afterglow of the burst is made up of x-rays scattered by layers of dust within our galaxy. Wowzers. Okay, moving on to today's Connecting Africa, and we are zeroing in on zero-waste farming. It's achieved by putting crops, fish, and animals together in a way that mimics Mother Nature. And as Eleni Jokos discovered, this model also is growing jobs and food security across the continent. capital, Porto Novo, you'll find an extraordinary enterprise. About 37 years ago, Father Godfrey Nzamujo began farming with one acre of land. Today, he says that's grown to 54 acres. Here, as part of a circular economy, he carries out a zero-waste farming model, a sustainable form of agriculture and aquaculture that mimics the natural environment. So what we're doing here, we're copying nature. We call it biomimicry. At the Songhai Center, everything gets reused. Animal waste and wastewater is collected in what Father Nzamujo calls a biogas digester. Methane and fertilizer is produced from this process, generating energy, which partly powers the center. So underneath is a big chamber that is harnessing all those things, producing the gas you see here, so it's producing two things for us, natural fertilizer and the gas for energy. 
His zero-waste approach doesn't end with producing fertilizer and energy. By introducing microbes into the water mixture, it also generates algae and other nutrients, which is used to feed his fish. We call this sink, nutrient energy sink. Everything is collecting here. The algae can harvest between 60 to 80, 90% of the solar energy through the bacteria we call photosynthetic bacteria. Incredible. Using aquaculture to make energy and grow the algae, which in turn feed the fish, Father Nzamojo says it is a perfect example of a sustainable blue economy. So this is what we are harnessing today, deploying them to start this new movement of an economy that is sustainable, that is regenerative today. Seen as a success, the Songhai model is being replicated in 25 countries across Africa, according to Father Nzamujo. Young entrepreneurs are being taught zero-waste farming practices with the goal of creating jobs, increasing food security and sharing a vital knowledge across the continent. Eleni Jokos, CNN. Okay, and that's it for the show. Marketplace Europe is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.